This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on our first episode of Season 3. General Mills, owner of Annie's Mac and Cheese, developed a product saying, we're going to make it with one-third yellow pea flour. And they said, Nate, you want to grow some yellow peas? And I'd never grown yellow peas, but I'm like, I'll try anything. And it just ended up being this super good fit for my region. First-generation farmer Nate Powell-Palm shares his inspiring story of starting his farming career at the age of 12 and adding pulses to his grain and livestock rotation. Nate is located near Bozeman, Montana, and currently farms organic pulse crops, oilseeds, cereals, and livestock. Beginning on his parents' 10 acres in 2004, Nate now farms around 1,000 acres spread across 12 different landlords. He also serves on the National Organic Standards Board and has been an organic inspector for about 10 years, where he's visited over 3,000 farms across 44 states. In today's episode, we talk about his story of getting started in farming, what his organic production system looks like, including pulses, of course, how his picture ended up on the box of Annie's Mac and Cheese, and what he has learned from others on his farming journey. I can't think of a more inspiring story to kick off our third season. It all started for Nate Powell Palm as a kid in 4-H. Yeah, so my parents were really nice and they let me uh, take a 4-H steer to the fair right when I turned nine. And through that process, I was just bit by this sort of production agriculture bug where I could make a living being outdoors, raising animals. I have, you know, just this deep respect for animal husbandry and this really sense of excitement at the thought of actually producing food for my community. And so looking at that, I, I realized I wanted to dive a little bit deeper than just feeding out some steers a few months of the year. And that's what led me to ultimately want to go down the cow-calf route. And I think food has always been the through line that I really have loved seeing my product actually be something that goes to nourish my community and ultimately keeps a lot of value in the community. When I'm buying tractors from my local dealers, when I'm ultimately hiring local agronomists, all of these things are pretty localized and ultimately producing a lot of opportunity for other folks in my community. Excellent. So did you start off with those first uh, few cows in kind of renting the land from your parents? And then did it kind of grow from there? Or how did this all sort of happen from a land standpoint? Because that seems to be the biggest barrier for someone like yourself to be a first generation producer. Absolutely is. Yes. So my parents have 10 acres. And so they let me um, use the heck out of that 10 acres, which was really, really great. But obviously, I needed a bit more land for production. And so I rented another 10 acres just down the road in 2010 or 11. Yeah. And that was sort of the first foray into realizing that there's actually a lot of opportunity for sort of a smaller grower like me to rent out these smaller um, fields. My equipment's appropriate for them. I'm not oversized for it. And it gives me access to really good soils in a pretty good region of the state where it rains a little bit more than other parts. And so built it out from there. So I have just about a dozen landlords now and altogether rent about a thousand acres. At what point were you able to make this kind of a full-time income? I imagine that, you know, when you started in 2004 with a couple cows that you weren't there yet, but at what point did you say, okay, I'm going to make this work. And this year, this is going to pay my bills and feed me. It was really 2013 that um, I leased out a bunch more land. So uh, I had that 10 acres that from 2011. That was a good irrigated hay spot. It took care of my small herd at the time. And I thought, why can't I scale this? And so I just drove around my neighborhood, probably with about 20 miles of where I was living, and just kind of looked at different fields that looked like they weren't being farmed. They're were just kind of fallow. Maybe they were in hay, but there didn't seem to be a lot of 
stuff going on with them. And I just sent letters to all those landowners saying, this is my story. I'd be super interested in renting your land. I need it to be organic. So if you haven't sprayed anything in the last three years or put anything on, I'd be really interested in talking to you. Willing to transition, but really interested in talking to you if it's already eligible. And from there, got about half a dozen replies, some with some big acreages. And um, I was able to start putting together this this larger operation. So that first year, I, that was 2012, I got a lot of those leases signed and ready to go for production year 2013. The organic community, at least in Montana, has been really great about fair contracts and also forward contracts. And so I basically sold all of the hay before I cut it on an acreage basis for a forward contract. And that down payment allowed me to ultimately secure the equipment, really get into business, and then from there, fund the operation um, into its current existence. And for funding, I understand that part of the way you kind of got started was through a grant. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so it was actually a loan. It was a $3,400 loan to buy the cows. And I got the loan in 2004. And that was right when we closed the border with Canada due to mad cow disease. So domestic cattle prices went up very quickly. And so I was able to repay that loan just with the calves pretty fast there. And from there have been pretty much just operating on a cash basis ever since. We took out our first equipment loan to buy a no-till drill in 2021. And that was the first equipment loan we've taken out. Otherwise, it's been buying older machinery, machinery that we, you know, kind of hunt out of other people's junkyards to see if we can fix it up and ultimately try to be as good of mechanics as we can. Okay. And then was that initial loan, was that from the Montana Department of Ag? It was, yes. It was a junior ag loan specifically targeted to supplying funds to 12 to 18 year olds. And so I was 12 at the time when I got it. You were 12? Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And when did you make the decision that you wanted to be organic and kind of what prompted that? So I'd been certified organic for a few years um, when I was looking through some old archives and saw that my parents had applied for organic certification for their 10 acres when they first bought it. And though they never ended up actually getting certified or pursuing it, it was always something that I had grown up with valuing, that there's a way to grow food that's very pleasant for the growers. You know, you don't have to deal with harsh chemicals. You can ultimately be in a position to both protect your family, protect your land, be a good steward, but also raise really meaningfully uh, yielding crops. And so in 2006, I started purchasing some organic hay from these ladies who were making organic chicken feed that my parents were buying. And through that, uh, that hay purchase, just for my cows, my cows weren't yet certified organic. I got the chance to just learn about how the certification process works. Paperwork goes on. How do you actually apply? Who do you send that application to? How much does it cost? And they were my organic mentors. They really walked me through all the way to the point of that first inspection. And so 2006, I started transitioning. In 2008, I was able to get the first piece of land and the cows certified organic. And 2008 on, it's been all organic all the time. I was able to, right after that first certification, receiving that certificate, I was able to join a co-op, a Montana Organic Producers Co-op, that collectively markets their certified organic grass-fed beef to ultimately to Whole Foods. And so it was this market that as a little, you know, selling a dozen head at the time, I would never have been able to to get into. But collectively, because we could make up semi-loads, we were able to realize this marketing opportunity as a group. And that was absolutely one of the, the biggest, you know, leaps for me to be able to sell my cattle at 
pretty much the highest price probably out there and available, but also finish them. So I wasn't just selling calves. I was able to sell higher value products that ultimately made me retain more of the value for my operation. So, I mean, I would think that selling that beef has got to be the highest value item that you sell. You know, why incorporate something like pulses into the system rather than just try to squeeze as much of the beef out of uh, the system as possible? Yeah, great, great question. Beef fluctuates. And so I think that what I've learned through not only farming, but organic farming especially is diversity pays. And so if you're going to be at all a producer, you'll want to have more than just one stream of income. And so for a while there, I was selling hay and selling beef and realized that in looking at, you know, just other farmers, I mean, I think most of the farmers in my, my area also have a grain component so that they can be ultimately just uh, hedging better um, so that when beef tumbles, as it did in, you know, 2016, we're going to be in a better position to have other options of things to market. And that uh, ecological component of crop rotation also was a real reason to jump in that I saw growing grass hay is good, but you're going to need a strong nitrogen source. So the cattle do provide some, but if you're just selling hay, it'll peter out after a while. You'll need some renovation. And I think those opportunities to renovate those pastures, renovate those hay fields, and not just use a nitrogen feeding crop like wheat, but also a nitrogen fixing crop like pulses has just been a really important puzzle piece to making my operation work. Great. When did you start adding pulses to the mix and why? Yeah. So in 2016, I got the chance through the Organic Trade Association to be part of a conversation about what is something that buyers of grains could do to help farmers ultimately get organic, stay organic and realize, you know, a good crop rotation. And the conclusion was you need to buy the whole crop rotation. You can't just buy Durham every year um, because otherwise we don't have really anywhere to necessarily go with pulses. And so one of the solutions to that was General Mills, owner of Annie's Mac and Cheese, developed a product saying we're going to make it with one third yellow pea flour and the rest Durham. Um, So it's going to be able to hit this really interesting high protein mac and cheese niche. And they said, Nate, you want to grow some yellow peas? And I'd never grown yellow peas, but I'm like, I'll try anything. And it just ended up being this super good fit for my region. Pulses are pretty good to grow in in the Dakotas and Montana, kind of across the board. But um, after a couple of years of growing yellow peas, I learned that Bozeman, where I'm at, was the largest producer of canned peas pretty much in the world in the early 1900s. And so we've kind of gone away from pulses, but it seems like there's a bit of a history there that pulses were a good fit for this region. And so, yeah, yellow peas are probably my favorite crop to grow at this point. They grow pretty tall and they're great at smothering weeds and they yield well. And so that's been really exciting for us. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What did you notice when you started incorporating the pulses as far as the positive impact of the system? Yeah, huge soil tilt improvement, actually. So the yellow peas I found were just really meaningfully softening the soil. And I'm sure there's more uh, science behind the way I'll describe it, but the aggregates were getting bigger. Uh, When I went through, the equipment was pulling less hard. And yellow peas, because they grow as a vine, ultimately grab things like thistles and pull them down, delaying their maturation. And so I saw just cleaner fields, ultimately. And they, they really formed just a carpet. We plant about 200 pounds an acre for seed. And so it really creates a thick carpet that smothers most things out. So when I'm thinking about how do I keep weeds at bay during my annual cropping period, it's a lot easier during hay, but during the annual cropping period, they were a really good player, a key player to that. 
Well, I'm sure there are, are some people listening that have always been conventional in their approach to growing pulse crops. In your case, you know, yellow peas. If a conventional producer comes to you and says specifically with pulses, like, how are you making this work? Like, I need these products that are, you know, just to keep the pest disease and other issues at bay. How are you making that work? You know, what what would come top of mind to tell them? The real ticket is to set up a crop rotation. And so you're not asking your land to grow the same crop more than once every three or four years. And so I think a lot of the disease pressures have been realized when folks are going wheat and peas and wheat and peas, or, you know, a similarly intense rotation. With my rotation, I really try to do three or four years of hay. And that cleans out weeds, really mellows the soil, ultimately cuts me a lot of slack because I don't have to till those years. So my springtime gets a lot loosened up time-wise, but also setting up that that rotation where I'm going to be expecting to maybe grow yellow peas once every four years on the same piece of ground or even farther apart. That's something that really gets rid of that disease and pest pressure worry for me. But also, and I think this is something about organic grain in general, being comfortable growing forages, if you can, even if it's just like hay barley, some way to just cut off early in maturation, all of the weeds that are growing in the field and bail them off and get rid of them so that they're not going to seed. In my early years, I wanted to grow a lot of grain and I wanted to do a lot of annuals. And I think um, I could have gotten a lot farther ahead of my weeds if I had said, we're going to look at being a forage operation primarily and first. And so however we fit those annuals around cuttings of hay, that's going to be the best way to control weeds. And for you, what's been the biggest challenge with the pulses specifically, a uh, problem that you've had to somehow you know, come up with creative ways to solve or just something that you're still wrestling with to try to get to the next level when it comes to your yellow pea production? Yeah, looking at uh, drought this year was was a doozy. Yellow peas peter out if it gets really hot when they're flowering, and it really did this year. So this year, I was you know shaving the ground trying to get them up just because they only got to be probably the height of lentils. Really, um, normally I've got yellow peas that grew waist high. I had no problem keeping my my combine well off the ground, but it was tricky. That was that was a tricky piece. Looking at also kind of identifying. And this is something I'm still working on, but is that yellow pea crop just better as a green manure if you're going to be hitting a drought like we hit this year and terminating it earlier, possibly giving that land a bit of rest, but ultimately getting that nodulation right. So I, I do inoculate my yellow peas almost, well, every year. If it's a new field that's just coming out of hay, I'll double the inoculant rate. You do have to use a certified organic approved inoculant, but there's quite a few available and they're really effective. So I'm probably first and foremost wanting to make sure that nodulation forms and I get that nitrogen credit out of the yellow peas. And then they're a cash crop after that. But really, I think, you know, building that soil fertility is the biggest reason to have pulses in your rotation. And then, you know, lots of times they're a very valuable crop when it works out and you get enough rain and you get enough heat at the right times. Right. Right. Ah, very cool. Well, um, in the approach you're taking where you're reaching out to so many different landlords, is there a critical number of years that you need to lock in a lease to kind of make it pay off for you, especially with some of these smaller acreages? Or is that just really depend on the situation with each individual landlord? Yeah, I don't sign leases for less than five years. 
And so there'll sometimes be a buyout clause where if they decide to sell, then I'll be compensated for the revenue I would have realized over the duration of my lease. But in Montana, you're always guaranteed that if you've planted a crop, you get to keep it and go to harvest. I think that might be common across the United States. And so there are, there are definitely protections and I build in there really clear language for what my expectation is, because especially if I'm transitioning a field, there's quite a bit of investment during those first three years before you actually get an organic crop. And so I want to make sure that I get a few years of that crop at that premium. And so organic is a poor fit for one-off years in my experience, but there are lots of ways to do it. I found that my landlords also really appreciate that I'm not spraying right next to their house. Um, so I do have landlords who live on those 10 acres and I'm just farming around their house. And that works out. There's a, you know, kind of a broader conversation, I think, to be had about organics as far as landlords with soil building. You're creating value for their soil in the long run. A bit of aesthetic farming. Yellow peas are really beautiful. I think all pulses are really beautiful when they're flowering and you get those white blooms all across the fields. I get landlords, you know, pulling off to the side of the road, bragging to their neighbors how they have the most beautiful fields in the valley. It's not just wheat. And I remind them that wheat is beautiful. So don't don't get too sad about wheat. But there's a lot of opportunity for thinking about how do we both farm for the community while also producing a valuable production crop. Makes sense. Well, you mentioned if you're transitioning ground into organic, I know that's traditionally been a barrier, that three-year period where maybe you are performing all the organic-friendly practices, but not reaping any of the rewards for those practices yet. Are there resources out there to help people with that transition? It feels like I've heard of some here and there, but I don't know how widespread they are. Yeah. So there's two thoughts there. One is that you try to get a little bit of a premium during transition to help cover that. That is my least favorite path. My absolute hands-down recommendation for transition is to go into forage for those three years. Even if it's just annual oats and peas, you're going to chop it off, you're going to sell it to a neighbor, you're going to graze it. Just because I would like to put alfalfa in for those three years, realize fine money, just selling it as conventional alfalfa, but ultimately get my weeds taken care of, getting my nitrogen fixed and having a really clean field when I can finally sell that grain as organic. I see folks try to like do non-GMO corn if they're in the Midwest kind of corn belts during their transition period, non-GMO corn, non-GMO soybeans. And they might get a, you know, a small amount of premium there, but ultimately they're mining their ground for that nitrogen that's going to be really valuable once they're ready to have an organic corn crop. I tend to to lean towards forages throughout the transition. And it's just kind of after seeing thousands of folks do transition as an organic inspector, the ones who just get out of it with a smile are the ones who just let it go, clean up the fields. And they're like, I got my best wheat crop ever because the field was so clean after I terminated that alfalfa and it's really good protein. I'm doing a good job because I had that nitrogen credit. So I think going forages has been the cleanest way, I think, to do it. What what else have you learned from being a certifier? That seems like a great position to be in just to learn from thousands of organic farms around the country. What seems to stand out with those that are successful and seem to be thriving versus some that maybe seem to be struggling? Because I'm sure there's a wide variety out there. Uh, what lessons have you gleaned from that experience? Yeah, well, I'll give a plug for a podcast that I made um, with the Organic Agronomy Training Service, talking a lot about that, the dirt on organic farming. But I think the biggest thing for me has been this forage realization, 
that to have a clean, healthy system, you really want to incorporate forage as a means of controlling your weeds. Also, it's a fertility benefit when you integrate animals. And it's kind of this growing discussion about regenerative agriculture and further livestock integration to try to help nutrient cycling on farm. But that's not to say that everyone needs to be a cattle guy. I think that there's a lot of room to growing forages and, you know, selling them locally or just realizing more revenue. Other exciting, you know, innovations that I've seen is always forward contracting your crops, growing crops that you know you have a market for. And so I've never grown a crop other than hay that I didn't already have sold. And so uh, say I have a 50 acre field and I'm looking for a market, I will sign that 50 acre field for production contract so that whatever comes off that field is that buyers, we have a set price. Lots of times I ask them to pay for the seed and so that they'll take the seed out of the finished product when I deliver it, but ultimately helping my cash flow to not have to have a huge cash outlay at planting and then hunting for contracts that work with your rotation. I've got that first um, yellow pea contract with uh, Annie's and that was really fantastic. But I've been like, I want to grow more yellow peas. So looking for more folks who will buy yellow peas and lentils and garbanzo beans and these other pulse crops that I know are going to be an important part of my rotation, doing the homework to figure out who's buying pulses out there organic, what's the best deal, what's best fit for my rotation and how do I make sure that I'm never left with a crop in the bin that doesn't have a home. At a good price. I think being comfortable growing forages also takes the pressure off of growing annuals for less than optimal prices. And so if I don't have a good wheat contract one year, I'll probably just put it back into hay. I know that I'll be able to make enough money off the hay that it's going to keep me going, but I'm not going to be giving away that nitrogen for nothing in a poor wheat market. Right, right. And are you marketing your peas the same way you market your beef through that co-op or is this a separate sort of marketing plan? And if so, how are you doing that? Yeah. So our co-op just took on grain, including pulses, as part of their portfolio last year. So up to this point, it's all just been direct contracts with buyers. Um, But we're starting to move. There's about 12 of us farmers all moving our grain accounts into to be channeled through the co-op to realize bigger opportunities when, you know, a buyer says that they need 50,000 bushels or, you know, 100,000 bushels and no one of us can necessarily supply that. Then we're putting ourselves in a position to ultimately land those contracts as a group. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are you offering any sort of like identity preservation with any of the products that you're selling? And, and how does that play into this? Very much so. So if you go into a Whole Foods or your local Albertsons or other grocery store to the Annie's section, the box of mac and cheese that our product goes into has my face on the back. And so it's it's me and my buddy Casey Bailey up in northern Montana. And we both provide the ingredients for that Annie's mac and cheese. So that's probably the, the purest identity preserved example. But there's this growing interest in, you know, farm to fork and understanding how to make claims about the practices involved in growing. Organics is a really neat system because every single organic product you buy on the shelf is going to be traceable back to the farm in which the ingredients were grown. And it's just part of the requirement of being certified is you have to have a traceability system in place. And so farmer, miller, seed planer, everybody has to be able to trace it lot to lot. And so that gives us a bit of an advantage already that we're we're used to showing that traceability. So when customers come saying that they want to make a product that describes our organic regenerative practices, can make a claim about how we do tillage, what our biodiversity programs are, that we integrate livestock, all of those pieces are, are ready and I think going to be a huge source of value for farmers 
as consumers get more and more awareness and more and more excitement builds behind kind of voting with your dollar, as it were. There's practices and especially environmental practices that are important to consumers. And I think farmers can make uh, make revenue off of that by ultimately doing those practices and marketing them. Well, you said you've got a dozen landlords or so and a thousand acres or so. You know, how much more can one guy accomplish? And, and you know, how do you think about the future? Is it is it measured in more acres or is it, uh, you know, are you looking at metrics a different way? Metrics a different way. I'm looking at how do I really increase that net profit per acre? You can grow in a couple of ways. You can just grow with uh, kind of declining margins per acre, but you're getting bigger. So you're scaling and realizing more revenue that way. Labor is tight everywhere and it's really tight here where I'm at. And so thinking about how do I ultimately grow crops that are worth more money, require less tractor time, require less tillage, innovate so I can till a lot less. So a few of my fields I'll till every few years. This year I got a good wheat crop because I did zero tillage on my wheat field and just no-tilled it right into my piece double. It was a little weedy, but it also was one of the few crops in my area that made grain because I hadn't lost the moisture in the tillage. So figuring out how to innovate more on that scale of what do we do to realize more net revenue. And I think um, if I could change one thing about coffee shop talk amongst farmers, it's not bragging about how many bushels you got per acre, but how many net dollars you made per acre. And I realize that is probably a tricky conversation, but it would be exciting to get there because I think that points us to what are we doing that's not making us money? If we get you know 300 bushels of corn per acre, but we spent most of that revenue on the fertilizer bill, is that really where we want to go? Does that allow for a bright future for the next generation? One last question. I just thought of you were talking about, you know, no till. Do you think you'll ever be able to completely eliminate tillage from your system? I'm hoping so, but I don't think so. Mostly because I really need to use alfalfa in my rotation. And alfalfa is really hard to get rid of with anything but tillage. So I think it's it's absolutely the goal. And I think that's where we should be putting all of our research dollars as land-grant institutions is figuring this out. But I think my goal is to, if you look over a five-year period, how can I have as little tillage as possible? In aggregate, because organics uses that forage period where you're going to have a lot of time off, in net, it's on par with a lot of conventional operations. Not necessarily, you know, your dryland wheat, absolutely no-till operations, but on the whole, when you look at the whole rotation, there's quite a bit uh, of progress being made, but also trying to keep up with conventional and how do we ultimately reduce tillage in as most effective a way as we can. Yeah. And how much do you benefit from Bozeman having a strong community of people wanting to buy kind of local, organic and willing to pay a premium for that? Or do you think even if you were in the middle of you know Western North Dakota, you would still have similar marketing opportunities. That's the beauty of the organic seal is it basically is saying to every customer across the country that we've met a certain standard of growing. And so they can with confidence pay that premium. And so I have found, you know, the towns of 50 people have as many marketing opportunities as a place like Bozeman that has a lot of folks who are interested in food. But I mean, a lot of folks aren't ready to buy been run wheat and realize, you know, the premium for that. And so I think it's, it's the coolest thing because you don't need to have a farmer's market to peddle it. You're ultimately looking at really large buyers who are really ready to buy in volume or buy small loads. But the seal and the consumer confidence in the seal is what makes this deal work. 
What a fascinating conversation there with Nate Powell Palm. He also has a great video profile by the Montana Organic Association that we will go ahead and link to in the show notes, as well as that podcast he mentioned, The Dirt on Organic Farming. We'll include links for both of those. If you enjoyed that, I bet you'll also enjoy our next episode about pulses and full season cover crops for haying and grazing with Dr. Miranda Meehan. Pea is the only one that is suitable for both haying and grazing. The others are only recommended for grazing. Most of that has to do with that dry down period and getting a good quality hay out of it and not reducing that potential for molding in that hay. Make sure you're subscribed to this show on your podcast platform of choice so you catch that upcoming episode as well. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, and the North Central Risk Management Education Program. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information is relevant to you. So please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag GrowingPulseCrops. And we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. 